couple of uh, weeks ago, I was finishing the sermon on electing a president on the basis of the one who comes closest to biblical values, the sanctity of life, and the biblical definition of marriage. And when the sermon was over, I had a young man walk across and come up to me and said, I, I'm just curious, I want to ask you a question. Wouldn't it be hypocritical for us to vote for a leader who upheld the biblical role of marriage and we weren't living out the biblical view of marriage in our homes and our lives? I said, you're right. It would be. It would be unbiblical for us as believers in Christ to vote for a man who comes closest to upholding biblical values if we're not willing to live out the biblical view of marriage in our own homes. I really believe this is a critical election and has a, a lot to do about what our values are and it's so easy to draw conclusions based on what a nation will do as opposed to what individuals would do. So I'm just simply pointing that question to us and simply stating that it really would be somewhat hypocritical to vote for a man that we believe comes closest to supporting the biblical view of marriage if we're not living, willing to live that out in our own homes. When you consider the fact that divorce rate among those who go to church is similar with those who don't, you've got to wonder if we really are living out what we say we believe in. You, you see, it's easy to declare our values or even vote our values. It's another thing to live them out. And what God's Word tells us is to live it out. Now, interestingly enough, of all things that we could be dealing with today or this week, we're dealing with the subject of marriage because Peter deals with it. And so this morning, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to find out that Peter has a lot to say about the biblical view of marriage and what it ought to look like. And that's what we're going to spend some time dealing with. How many of you believe that it's easier to get married than to stay married? <laughs> You're really smart. Because it really is. I love weddings. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty sometimes with family situations and, and, and all of that. But for the most part, I really love doing weddings. I love the, the surprise. I love the excitement. I love the anticipation. I love going back to the bridegroom room when everybody is ready and seeing that delight on her face, seeing everybody around her with smiles all over the place. I love going back to the groom's room and seeing him sweat to death, wondering what these next few moments in his life is going to hold. I can't wait for that bride to have those doors open up and her to come down the aisle. And I say to every parent, man, you've got to watch that face. You've got to see it light up when that gal comes out. <coughs> no matter what he thinks or how many times he's seen her before, it's that one moment in time where you just light up. I've seen guys weep. I've seen them shake. I've seen one faint. I've seen them cry. I mean, it's just one of the most amazing moments in time. I find it fascinating, though, through all of my years of doing marriages, how much they're willing to spend on a day, but so little on a lifetime. Do you know the average, according to USA Today, the average cost of a wedding today, how many of you know what it is? $26,900 is the average cost of a wedding today. $26,900, it's almost $27,000 thousand dollars is the average cost of a wedding today how many of you have girls that aren't married yet how many of you just had a heart attack <laughs> it's overwhelming what it entails and what it costs and, and and what it is they're doing in that particular context as to how much it's going to cost and yet i see them over and over again 
talking at that one moment in time about the awareness of what this day is all about, yet forgetting that it's about a lifetime and not just that moment in time. They're so fast. They plan forever for this incredible day, and they prepare. They've got brides' magazines up to here. They've got them in their hope chest. They've gone through them. They know what they want. They anticipate what they want. They get ready for that day, and all of a sudden, the day is over and it's gone, and they realize how fast it went. But they've invested thousands and thousands of dollars into that particular event. Now, not everybody does. I understand that. Our wedding costs, what, $300. And we've been married almost 40 years next summer. It lasts. It works. I mean, I'm still blown away by that fact that our wedding cost us $300. Her mother was amazing. She made her dress. She made all the bridesmaid dresses. We, we ate a, a barbecue in, the, in her backyard for the reception because my parents were too cheap to pay for it, I think, or whatever. <laughs> Over the rehearsal for the reception, we had it in, in, in her home church, which is cake and ice cream because it had to be 8 o'clock at night because we had to do the wedding around the cows. My wife said, we have to what? I said, well, we were going on a honeymoon for a few days, and my brother and I have always split their chores. Every, day, every other day was him and me, and he said, you're going away for the next few days, so on your wedding day, you're milking the cows, pal. <laughs> so we had to milk cows in the morning and at night, and I, uh, we couldn't get married till 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> the whole thing was just kind of weird. <laughs> I won't tell him the part about me falling asleep on the honeymoon or anything like that. From being awake so early. And I'm still fascinated. And I listen to couples. Hey, you know where we went on a honeymoon? West Virginia. <laughs> right. West Virginia Mountaineers. And you know how we decided how long we were going to stay in a honeymoon? We were opening the envelopes on the way that we got in our wedding to determine how many days we could stay in West Virginia. And I'm listening to these couples today when they're talking about going to Punta Conta and, and Grandio and, we're, you know, thousands of dollars on a, on a wedding and thousands of dollars on a honeymoon. They're going all over the world and they're going to these great resorts and these events and these sandal things. And I'm going, I went to West Virginia. <laughs> and I wasn't even sure how long I was going to stay based on how much money was in the envelope. And I hope my aunt came through so that I could stay for an extra day or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, I have all these couples that stand before me. I'm on 191 or 192 weddings that I've done in my ministry life. I'm just, I love that fact. I'm close to 200. 200 gets a celebration. Number 200 gets a celebration. I'll do it for free. It's going to be a great day. Uh, it, and 200 is probably going to come in the year 2013. So if you're thinking about getting married, man, sign up. You could be. <laughs> you could be number 200 in my ministry life. And I see them stand before me, and they're all excited about the day, and they walk up here, and they get on the platform, and I have them look into each other's eyes, and I ask them that standard question, are you going to stay together the rest of your life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health? Not a one of them said, can we get back to you? We'll call you in a week, we'll let you know. No, they all look at me and say, yeah. And I look at them and say, you have no idea what you disagreed to. But they all say yes. And to be honest with you, they all mean it. They think. They really do mean it. They're not going to lie to each other. They're not going to lie to God. They're not going to lie to me. They really do mean, you bet, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. But this is, this is amazing. And they have no idea what the worst could look like until it comes. And then they look back on that and say, wow, I said that? <laughs> yeah, you did. 
Now, my intention in this time together this morning is, please do not misunderstand me. There are a lot of people in our audience who have been through the pain of divorce. And my intention during these weeks together is to not bring that pain back up. That is not my intention at all. My intention is to help marriages now. I can't go backwards, nor can you. So don't. Don't go backwards in your mind. The past is the past. If it's in Christ, it's gone. Forget it. He erased it. Quit doing that. Let's go from here on. And my, my encouragement during these days together, I thought it was two weeks until the first sermon this morning, and I had 14 pages of material, and I got to page 10, and the time ran out. So I realized this could be a couple, three weeks. This is one of the most foundational, powerful um, institutions God's ever given us. And I don't want to rush through it. And I've been fascinated during these last five or seven days as I've worked on 1 Peter chapter 3 and these first seven verses, how many insights Peter had that I, some of them I hadn't even seen before that I want to share with you in this time together. It takes a day for a wedding and a lifetime for a marriage. And my heart's desire is that every couple within the sound of my voice spends a lifetime allowing this marriage to be everything God designed it to be. 1 Peter chapter 3, you're there. Let's read it together. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Beauty shouldn't only come from the outside, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great value in God's sight. Everybody who's been to my weddings have heard me read this to the bride. For in this way... The holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and don't give away to, don't give way to fear. Husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. That is a powerful statement at the end of that. I remember a few weeks ago when I shared with you that every time you hear a section of Scripture, read a section of Scripture, you need to keep four things in mind. you all remember what those four things were? Number one, understand the context. Always make sure that you understand the historical context. Back up a little bit to see the context around it. Back up even more to see the context around that or the historical context. Who's he writing to? Who's she writing to? Why are they writing? What issues are they dealing with? What is Scripture then? So you're continuing to back up. What does Scripture say about the subject? And then finally, how do I apply it? What does this mean to me? What does this say to me? Now, I know you remember those things. You've memorized them. You have that sheet somewhere. Verse, one of the most precious possessions you have are my sermon notes. And <coughs> Okay, that was unnecessary. <laughs> All right, so it's in there. It's been a couple times I put it in those sermon notes. Those four things are critical when we examine the subject of marriage. And when we explore this particular section of Scripture, that we look at the context, that we understand the historical context, that we see what Scripture has to say about it, and then we learn to apply it. All four of those are absolutely foundational and critical to this piece as we walk through it. And you need to understand that. Now, we're not going to deal with all the Scripture on the subject, but I do want to back up enough to see them all. Most men like 1 Peter 3.1. Wives, submit to your husbands. We like that. I mean, I find it fascinating how we love those kinds of verses. Ephesians 5, 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What I find interesting is that most men only remember the scriptures they like and the ones they want applied that impact them positively. 
We forget verses like Ephesians 5.21 when it says, submit to one another. Or 5.25 when it says, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Man, that just elevates it exponentially. Not just love your wife, but love her like Christ loved the church. Or this verse here in verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. And treat him with respect as a weaker partner as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Let's explore the context for a moment. When you look at verse 1, I want you to remember that it comes out of the context of two issues. One is the context of submission. You all have your Bibles in front of you, right? Because you're so obedient, children. You, you, every time I tell you that, you're already in the Word, right? You, you all have a Bible, right? Okay. Look at your Bible, and you'll notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, he says, submit. He does it over and over again. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit to your masters. Servants, he says in some context. 3.1, wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. God is always and has always been a God of order, not a God of chaos. Anytime you read in Scripture or trying to find what the Scripture says about a particular subject, you always got to go back to where you first discovered it. If it's marriage, obviously, as we're going to talk about that, go all the way back to the beginning of time, and you'll find out that God instituted this incredible gift called marriage of a man and a woman. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and that's always been the way it works, always from the beginning of time, and that's how God designed it. When you look at God from the very beginning of time, interacting with humanity, you see him being a God of order, taking order and er, taking chaos and making order out of it. Look at the beginning of Genesis, first few verses. You'll see God's first interaction with humanity that we would see and understand, seeing him bring order out of chaos. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was with out form and empty, darkness covered the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God began to hover over it. And then God said, let there be light. And there was what? Light. It responded. It immediately reacted to God's command. God saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness night. There was evening and morning on the first day. When you read Genesis in those first few verses, you'll see that creative process going on over and over and over again. God said, it happened. God said, it happened. God said, it happened. God has always been a God of order, God, not a God of chaos. God didn't look at his son and say, hey, you know what? Whenever you feel like it, just come on up. If you don't, stay down for the day. Moon, you don't feel like coming out tonight? Don't worry about it. Come out next Thursday. It really is not a big deal. God is not like that Jimmy Dean commercial. You've all seen that Jimmy Dean sausage commercial, you know, where the sun doesn't feel like coming out today and the clouds don't feel like coming out or the moon doesn't want to come out. God is not like the Jimmy Dean commercial. They don't come out when they feel like it. God is a God of order and a God of design, taking order and making it out of chaos, or taking order out of chaos and making it order. He's always been that way. You see it all the way through Scripture, and he deals with humanity in that particular process. He does it all the way through. 1 Corinthians 14, when he's talking about some things that were in disarray or disorder in the church, he said, that's not how I want it. I want, I'm a God of order. I'm a God of process. No chaos. This is how it ought to be. This is how your service is ought to function. God continues to do that all the way through time. The other thing you need to understand, and so that's what he's doing here. He has an order, has a design as to how it ought to be. The other thing you need to understand that verse 1 was never intended to speak to the issue of value or importance. It was order and God's creative process. 
never intended to speak to the issue of value or importance for the wife in the role. He addresses that in verse 7 when he said, we're joint heirs with Christ. We receive the exact same benefits. Paul talks about it in Galatians when he said, there's not Jew or Greek in God's eyes in this process of what we receive from him. Neither slave nor free, male or female, we're all one in Christ. And you need to understand these verses were never to be used as an excuse for servanthood, put down, or abuse. Any man who abuses a woman isn't a man. One out of three women worldwide will be physically, sexually, or otherwise abused in their lifetime. One out of every three. That's as high as 70% in some countries. One out of every four women will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. Look around the room. That's one out of every four are going to experience domestic abuse at some time in their lifetime. An estimated 1.3 million women are victims of physical assault by a partner every single year. 85% of domestic violence victims are women. I mean, that is astounding. You know, the one thing or one of the things that on the highest priority list of what a police officer wishes he could avoid or didn't have to deal with domestic violence or domestic abuse, not only because of what he's going to see, but because of the impact and the uncertainty of what's going to deal with. Any man who abuses a woman isn't a man. And any man who uses Scripture to put down a woman or devalue her in any way isn't a biblical man. Now, I know I'm speaking to the choir, right? So take those two phrases and give them to somebody that you may know out there. But any man who abuses a woman isn't a man, and any man who uses Scripture to put down a woman or devalue her in any way is not a biblical man. Do you all agree? Okay. It was never the intended use of these Scriptures. God is a God of order. When he talks about submission, he does it all the way through, and I'll explain that broader in a minute. The second thing you need to understand in the result of context is the context of how it fits into the other verses. Peter has been trying to help us understand how to make a difference in a non-believing world as a believer. He's been saying that all along. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from simple desires which wage war against your soul. Live such a good life among those who don't believe, the pagans, so that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. I believe that one of the contexts of this is not only the, order, the, con- the, the fact that God is a God of order and a God of submission and constantly does that all the way through, but he's trying to make a fascinating point. One of the most amazing points in, in all of this context is how important it is that those who believe in Christ make a difference on those who don't. Very specifically, here he addresses it within the context of marriage. Wives, in the same way, what same way? The same way of submission, but also the same way as I'm trying to help you understand how to make an impact as a believer on a non-believing world. That's what same way works with. What we sometimes do is only look at one same way and take it within the context of submission. As opposed to same way in regards to the context of submission, God of priority, God of order, and the context of make a difference on a non-believing world as a believer. He addresses that issue very clearly at the end of verse 1. Be submissive to your husbands means willingly submit to your husband's leadership in the marriage, which obviously infers the husband needs to be what? Leading. Notice also what it says in here, and I love how Peter addresses it. Paul does the same, uses a word that many times we overlook. Notice who he says that we are to be submissive to. Our own husbands, not someone else's. I've heard men say, women are to submit to all men's authority. Nope, to their husbands. 
That's what he says. That's what Paul says. That's why both of them use the word to your own husbands. Many men put women down expecting them to submit to all men. That is not the issue he's addressing here. And that's why in both here and in Peter, he said, to your own husband. Wayne Gruden, in his commentary on 1 Peter, said, I, I need to remind you that submission to authority is very consistent with importance and dignity and honor. Jesus submitted himself to his parents. He submitted himself to the will of God. Christians who are highly honored in God's sight are still commanded to be subject to an unbelieving government. The command to wives to be subject to their husbands should never be taken to imply inferiority, spiritually less or less valuable. Peter affirms the opposite in verse 7 when he says that wives are joint heirs with the grace of life. Joe Believer, Joe Barry, in her book, Beloved Unbeliever, one of the best I've ever read on 1 Peter chapter 3, says, I want to remind you that submission is not blind obedience. Obedience is sometimes a byproduct of submission. Whereas obedience is following orders, submission is voluntarily surrendering or yielding my will to someone else. In Scripture, wives are exhorted to submit themselves to the husbands. Children are told to obey, and there is a vast difference between the two. Your wife, as a bishop said years ago in another context, your wife ain't your mama, so don't act like she's supposed to be, and your wife's not your children. Don't treat her like that. I find it fascinating in Ephesians when Paul talks about it, he goes on to talk about that order. Wives, you're to be submissive to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives like Christ saw the church. Children, obey your parents. He never addresses that to the issue of a wife. Submission is my willingness to put myself under the authority of someone else. Let's continue with the verse. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands so that if any of them didn't believe, they would be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your life. The book I mentioned a moment ago, Joe Barry's book, Beloved Unbeliever, does a phenomenal job of taking 1 Peter 3, she deals with a lot of issues in this, but she does a phenomenal job of taking 1 Peter 3 and fleshing it out. How, as, a non, as, as one married to a non-believing husband, how do I live out my faith and hopefully draw them to Christ? Peter addresses the issue here that, to be honest with you, isn't usually dealt with. What happens when the wife comes to Christ first and the husband isn't? How do I deal with that? What do I do? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when he, or chapter 7. He said, don't leave. But he talks about it here in the context here of what happens when the wife comes to faith in Christ first, which so often happens. won't embarrass you, but I would love to know. In all of my years of experience, I have found in the context of marital relationships, the wife usually the one coming to faith in Christ first before the husband does. A lot of reasons for that. One is that men don't like to admit they have a need, right? We're not lost. We're creative in finding our way home. We're, we're not lost. We're creative in finding our way. We just want to explore another facet of God's creation. So we're driving down these roads hoping to get where we want to go, but just look at what we've learned along the way. Now you're lost. Ask for help. But we don't want to do that. That's the very first thing you need to do when you admit you need to come to Christ as Savior. Admit you have a need. And you can't ask, you can't do it. You can't save yourself. You can't win yourself. You can't get to heaven on your own. The only way that you'll ever get to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so for all of us, at some point or the other, we've got to admit that we have that need. It's much easier for whatever reason for women to do that than for men. Men don't want to ever admit that need. All of us, just so you know, and I'm clear on this, every single one of us outside of faith in Christ are a non-believer. And every single one of us, before we come to faith in Christ, are non-believers. You're all, I was, born in sin, and we were sinners as we were born. You can tell, well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Yes, I will. I've always been a Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a Christian nation, which, by the way, there is no such thing as a Christian nation. There's no whole nation that is Christian. But I've heard that all the time. Well, I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. And if you don't know for sure, that's the first decision you ought to make in life. Every single one of us were born in sin, and outside of Christ, we have no hope. You can put a little T-shirt on her saying she's daddy's little angel, but she's not. Because she is. How many times, how many of you noticed it? How many of you raising little kids? You don't ever have to teach them how to do wrong, right? It just comes naturally. I remember Rachel saying the other day, she's talking to Aaron, and I got two little, grand, three grandsons, and she has two little ones, and one's named Isaac, and the other one's Julian. She said, I could hear Isaac in the background of the conversation I'm having with Aaron say, Isaac, no, Isaac, no. He's saying that to himself about himself. <laughs> so obviously, he's heard that phrase, Isaac, no, so many times that now he's memorized it. And he already knows he's not doing it. You don't ever have to teach them how to do wrong. What do they do? When they know they're doing something wrong, they look at you and smile, don't they? <laughs> I'm not supposed to do this. I want to see what you'll do. They know that at a young age. All of us without faith in Christ are lost and doomed to a Christless eternity in hell. And the only way to ever get to heaven, Jesus was so clear about that. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to God but through me. And that's the only way to get to heaven. So all of us are lost without Christ. And so many times we're not sure what to do with that. And, and many times, at one point or the other, for whatever reason, the gal will come to faith in Christ and she says, now what do I do? How, how do I live in this? Paul said, don't leave. If they leave, then I'm not bound. But he tells me not to leave, so what do I do? Peter addresses that issue. Again, why you pull the combination of Scripture together. Peter gives a beautiful illustration using the example of a godly wife to an unbelieving husband which in a broader sense ought to be one of the most attractive qualities of faith in Christ, and that is the difference Jesus makes in the life of the believer, right? He uses here within the context of marriage, but think with me on a, on a broader scale. Your life and mine should make such a noticeable difference that people are drawn to the Jesus that has changed their lives, right? I mean, your life and mine ought to be so noticeably different when I walk out of darkness into light that when people look at me, they're attracted to the Jesus that changed my life. Isn't that the way God designed it? And so in this context here, he says the exact same thing. Your life ought to be so attractive, it's made such a difference in you that they want that. You and I know we've heard it before, but Christians ought to be the best advertisements for Christianity. Sadly, it's not always so, but that's the way God designed it. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and are always miserable, can you imagine people saying, well, I'd like to be like her? Or him? No. Jesus makes such a difference in our lives, such an amazing difference in our lives, that people are drawn to the Christ that has changed us and wants to find what we have found. That's what Peter's addressing here in this issue. I cannot believe, I cannot begin to tell you the amount of stories I've had through the years of guys who came to faith in Christ because of what they've seen in a gal who has such a deep commitment in Jesus. 
I mean, I've got story after story after story. I've had them stand before me in a wedding ceremony of gals that were so committed to Christ or others later in life after they were married, she came to faith in Christ, so committed to Jesus that her unbelieving husband wanted that and was attracted to it. God can do some amazing things even in the midst of the pain that you're dealing with now, understanding or not understanding why they don't come to faith in Christ. Continue to hold on to the fact that God can use you in phenomenal ways. But I do want to be honest with you and tell you the other side of the story. Because I've had a lot of girls through the years who are dating non-believers or get engaged to a non-believer thinking or convincing themselves that they'll bring them to faith in Christ only to end up miserable and going to church alone and even more so falling away from Jesus themselves. I have more heartbreaking stories, to be honest with you, on that end than the other end. Of gals who are dating non-believers, convincing themselves they're going to bring them to faith in Christ, trying to convince me they're going to do that, only to end up unbelievably miserable, abused, and going to church alone. And some of them even falling away from Christ. Years ago, I got a six-page letter from a girl. She was in my last church telling me she wishes she would have listened when I said, I cannot perform the marriage because you're marrying a non-believer. She got mad, she left the church, got married, only to end up abused and eventually divorced. The longest letter I've ever received from anybody in my life, to be honest with you, in that context. I said, I so wish I would have listened to you. Many will say to me, well, I don't want to be single the rest of my life. Can I be so honest with you and say it such, with such tenderness and love? There's a whole lot more worse things than being single. <laughs> Misery, abuse, and spiritual loneliness are way worse than being single. So please be very careful in that realm. You can. You can live such a godly life in front of them. They'll want to run to Jesus. But in my experience in ministry, it has so often happened the other way. Where they weren't willing to listen, they weren't willing to change, and they married somebody who wasn't a believer, and their life is miserable. Scripture is not only clear about the subject when he said don't get married to a non-believer. It's honest because it goes on to tell you why. What fellowship, he says, does light have with darkness? See, you and I are body, what you see, soul, who you are, and spirit, that part that was meant to connect to God. A biblical marriage was meant to connect in all three areas. An unbiblical marriage, your bodies may connect, your souls may connect, but your spirit in your mate as a non-believer cannot. That's one whole third of you that is left unconnected and unfulfilled. Your bodies may connect, your souls, who you are, may connect, but your spirit, that one thing that was meant, designed to connect with God, is left unfulfilled. That's a whole third of you. It's left unsatisfied and unfulfilled and unconnected. You're connecting to God, but the intention in a marriage was to connect to your mate in that realm. And when you're only connecting on the other two areas, there's something so empty and painful about that, that if some of you were to raise your hand this morning, you would say, absolutely. Paul says, Peter says the same thing. Don't do that. I love you. I'm not trying to be a killjoy or make your life miserable. I'm telling you what's going to make your life miserable, but you don't listen. So please listen to what it is that I have to say. He says here, wives, you have an amazing opportunity wonderful opportunity to show the love of God and to bring them to faith in Christ 
Just remember, that's after marriage, not before. So don't date with the intention of marrying a non-believer, hoping somehow that life will change, because many times it doesn't. i got to end, just because of time. So much more I want to say, and, and, and I, I really believe that God has some great things to say to us in this whole context. You cannot miss these next two pieces in these next weeks together. But there are a lot in the room this morning who are uh, wrestling with a lot of issues, personally, relationally, and you wish there were some great resources to help you. There is one. Family Life Ministries has Weekend to Remember. There's two of them coming up, one in November next weekend and one in December. And there's a representative outside the room this morning that's going to meet you. Let me show you a clip uh, about that, and then I'll dismiss you real quick.